0: God's word today comes to us from uh, John chapter 20, verse 24 to the end of the chapter. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may believe. And that by believing, you may have life in his name.
1: Amen. Can you believe we have one more sermon in our series from the gospel of John? I almost don't want it to end. Maybe we'll just go back to John 1 at the end and do the whole thing (laughs) over again. I I would argue, friends, that, that sometimes, even in the church, uh, the one thing that we most need to talk about is often the one thing that you and I are most reluctant to bring up. What do I mean by that? Well, we, we hesitate to pursue counsel even when our marriage is on the rocks or we, we balk at confessing our, our struggle with pornography even though we feel enslaved or we refuse to share the details of a a substance abuse issue, even though it's destroying our life and everybody that we claim to love. And and sadly, that that kind of silence goes down even in the church. We we can be silent for all sorts of reasons. Uh, Maybe it's, you know, pride in your, or your public image. You, you crave the approval of men. And the, the thought of, what will people think of me if I, if I bring my troubles into the light? I and mean, that's just, can't go there. But sometimes I think we're silent, even in the church, because we see Christians around us. Even people in this room that you were looking at as you walked in on a morning like this. And, and you say something like this to yourself. Listen to the way they talk. Listen to the way they pray. They clearly, they've figured out all this God stuff and now their lives are just clicking along. They look like they've got this thing all together. (laughs) What, What would they know? What would the people around me know about spiritual struggles? What would they know about the creeping doubts or the, the lingering skepticism or the stubborn unbelief that's in my heart or my mind when it comes to the Christian faith? What would they know about those things? I don't think much, so I'm just going to be quiet. Friend, if that's you, part of the point of the end of John 20 is to shout back, they know more, than you might think. <laughs> More than you might think, be- because John 19 through 20 is arguably the high point of John's gospel. We- we've sort of been lingering on the-, the climax, if you would, of God's work to rescue us from our rebellion and the judgment we deserve as a result. The trustworthiness of Jesus is on full display in these chapters. I think if, if John were a movie... And I'm sure somebody's turned it into a movie out there. Probably lots of people. I haven't seen one. But, but if John were a movie, 19 and 20 is you know the moment where everybody cheers and the credits start to roll. It's the high point of the gospel. But that's not at all what happens at the end of John 20. Instead, catch this, one of Jesus' own disciples What's that mean? Well, just somebody that's been following him for, I don't know, the better part of three years. Listening to every word coming out of his mouth. Following him all over the place, seeing everything he did, all the miracles he performed. One of those people outright refuses to believe in the resurrection. And if I could say this, I, for one, am actually grateful he did. Don't get me wrong. I'll explain what I mean by that. I'm grateful he did. And I'm especially grateful that the spirit inspired the apostle John to include Thomas's experience in his gospel. Why? Because I would argue Thomas is not alone. Thomas is not alone. Many of us struggle. I struggle as a pastor, okay? He's definitely not alone. Christian and non-Christian alike, we struggle to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, right? The, the moment you become a Christian, you don't get over that struggle or, well, I've got that figured out, you know, came to faith in Christ and from here on out, it's just like, I just trust struggle doesn't go away. That battle to rest assured, not just in theory, but in the depths of our soul, that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God, and and follow him accordingly. Friends, that's, with no exaggeration, that is the great battle of our life. It doesn't get any bigger than that. So here's the million-dollar question, okay, that the end of John 20 is cutting right at why should we believe Jesus? If you're not a Christian and you're listening to me and you're thinking, yeah, I've been wondering that. I've wondered that for decades. Well, listen this morning, because here's the question this chapter is getting at. On what basis should you place your confidence in Jesus? What's the reason for that? What's the basis for that? Is faith in him the, the result of just a personal experience of some kind? Some people have it, some people don't. I guess I'm not having it. Is faith in Jesus a, a leap in the dark? I've heard that. You know, d- despite all the evidence to the contrary, I'm, you just have to believe. Maybe you're in two minds. Part, part of you Wants to believe Jesus is who he says he is, but but part of you doesn't. Maybe nobody else even knows that. And you feel stuck. You wonder if you'll ever change. If genuine faith in Jesus is is even possible anymore. Because it's just been that way for so long. You you look at other Christians around you, like I was saying earlier, and you you see what appears to you as faith in Jesus, but But when you see that, it just makes you long for that in yourself. All of those challenges (laughs) make the end of John 20 a really precious gift, friends. Because in this section of John, the Lord speaks to several really important things. First, to our struggle with unbelief, we're going to talk about that. Second, God's posture toward us in the battle, and finally, the ultimate basis for faith in Christ. All three of those things. So so whether you're wrestling with faith yourself or you're trying to help somebody else who is, pay attention to what God is saying to us here. We need these words. Here's the first lesson, verses 24 and 25, unbelief toward Jesus Exposes our faith in someone else. Say that again. Unbelief toward Jesus exposes our faith in someone else. Look, look at verse 24, John 20, because it sets the stage. We, we learn that one of Jesus' 12 disciples, Thomas, was actually not with the other disciples when the resurrected Christ first appeared to them back in verse 19. What do we read there? On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad, understatement of the century, when they saw the Lord. (laughs) And John doesn't tell us why Thomas was was missing from that moment. He just says, look back at verse 24, he was not with them when Jesus came. But that doesn't stop all the other guys from telling Thomas exactly what they saw, right? I mean, after all, look look back at verse 21. What did Jesus just commission them to do? As the father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Sending us to do what, Jesus? Jesus. To tell the world what you have seen and heard, right? To to speak the reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and the the salvation he's won for us as a result. So in verse 25, John 20, all the other disciples around Thomas are doing exactly what Jesus charged and commissioned them to do. Thomas, we've seen the Lord. We really have, man, (laughs) He's not dead. He's alive. The the cross wasn't the end of it all. Everything that Jesus said about the indestructible power of his life, that he wasn't just a man, but the eternal son of God clothed in human flesh. It's all true, Thomas. They they proclaimed the, the true word of a resurrected savior to Thomas as the Lord's chosen ambassadors. No, less than every Christian in this room is. And because of their eyewitness testimony and the fact that it was so convincing and their presentation of the gospel so polished, Thomas believed them right then and there. No. No, because, well, they probably sounded a lot like a lot of us do. He didn't believe them at all. Look at verse 25. Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my fingers into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That that word we translate never is actually two words, original language. It's the strongest possible negation in Greek. It means I will surely not, no, never believe. I swear I won't believe. You you can't say it stronger than Thomas does. And I think it's striking here, friends, don't miss this, how even in his skeptical state, notice how Thomas views the crucifixion as an indisputable historical fact. Do you see that? In his mind, how, how would he recognize Jesus if he were to rise from the grave? Well, it would be this way because I know this happened by the wounds in his hands and his side. And like many in John's gospel, what's, what's Thomas doing when he says that? Well, he's, he's speaking better than he knew, right? Revelation 5 verse 6 and between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain. What's John? Spe- what's what's Thomas speaking better than he knew? He's reminding us that the cross is where the identity of Jesus comes most fully into view, friend. He he did all manner of good works when he walked this earth. But the cross is where we see Jesus for who he really is. Okay, that the Lamb of God who who takes away the sin of the world. So Thomas got one thing exactly right what's this that Jesus will forever be known by his scars. He got that right. If you want to know who Jesus is, you have to look to the cross. Because that's that's where the weight of his glory is most clearly seen. And yet, even as he got that right, Thomas got something else really wrong. What's that? Well, the word of God is communicated to him by an authoritative apostolic witness. What do they say? We have seen the Lord and he outright refuses to believe it. Refuses. It's not good enough. It's not enough evidence as far as Thomas is concerned. He he will only believe, think about this, on his terms, not God's. His faith is, it's built on human reason. On on what his own powers of, of physical observation tell him about God instead of what God has revealed about himself. The only things that are true in Thomas's book, in other words, are things Thomas has empirically verified through his personal experience. Those are the only things that can be true. And and I would say, part of that sounds noble, right? Especially to us. Admirably independent. I'm not going to go with the crowd. I'm going to figure things out for myself. I mean, it's, it's almost downright American. <laughs> but friends, it's fundamentally arrogant. It is. Whether it's in Thomas or in us. But Because the conditions Thomas sets forth for his faith here, they, they expose the true object of his faith. He's not faithless. He's faithful, but his fullness of faith is not in Jesus or God at all. It's in Thomas. More specifically, what what Thomas can observe with his own eyes, right? So his own senses are the final arbiter in his world. What, What he perceives is true. What he cannot perceive cannot be true. See that? So Thomas has yet to believe, I'll say it this way, in the resurrected Christ because he's still believing in someone else, namely himself. He, he wasn't a man who lacked faith, he had tremendous faith, great faith. It was just misplaced. And, and, and notice the implicit critique here is not, please hear this, sometimes this passage is wrongly preached. The critique here is not that Thomas needed reasons for faith or a basis for his belief. The problem, friends, is that the word of God, which Thomas had both heard from Jesus and from his chosen ambassadors, played second fiddle to his own understanding. That's the problem. And I think we can detect something of, of his attitude. If you go all the way back to John 4, verse 48, where Jesus critiqued the Jews this way, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What's he saying? That, that unless I do miracles that pass muster in the courtroom of human reason you'll have nothing to do with me. That's, that's not genuine faith, friends. That's, that's what I would call signs faith. It's not genuine faith, it's signs faith. Genuine faith, listen, is rooted in the person of Jesus, in the word and character of an unchanging God who cannot lie. Signs faith is rooted in whether God passes the test that we set up for him in our own mind. And it goes like this. Until he heals my body, I'm not trusting. Until he saves my kids, I'm not sure I can believe him. Until he changes my wife, or gives me a husband, or provides some other kind of physical proof that he is who he says he is, there is no way I am leaning the weight of my life on him. Meet my standard first, Jesus. That's what we say. Give me first the real object of my trust, all those things, and then maybe I'll throw some faith leftovers your way. (laughs) It's not hard to relate to that, is it? <laughs> so consider this, okay? Be honest. How, how stable, especially if you're not a Christian, just think about this with me, okay? How stable, how reliable is a faith built on our limited, ever-changing faith personal experiences. How stable could that ever be? How reliable could that be? Do do you really want to say, friend, think about this, that the only things in the universe that can possibly be true are things you have seen with your own eyes. Do you really want to say that? Do do you realize you're saying that? We we rationalize. I mean, we can all do this. We rationalize our lack of faith in Jesus as a failure on his part to provide enough evidence, you know? But the real issue, to be bold, is that we don't want to give up the tremendous faith we already have in ourselves. And the kind of evidence that we're demanding from Jesus as a result of that faith in ourselves. First thing we have to see here is that our unbelief toward Jesus exposes our faith in someone else, usually ourselves. Here's the second lesson, friends. And if you're feeling convicted by the first one, the second one is really good news. <laughs> Jesus overcomes our unbelief in the greatness of his mercy. All that I was talking about, that that unbelief in Jesus, that's actually the reverse side of the coin of faith in someone else, typically ourselves, our human reason, the standards we set for him. Yeah, you didn't pass that one, Jesus, so yeah, not gonna trust you. All of that unbelief, Jesus overcomes that through his mercy. If, If you were think about this. If you were Jesus, and I know it's a little dangerous, but just go here for a second, okay? How would you respond to a man like Thomas? To someone you had graciously given piles of reasons, right? Like mountains of evidence for believing and trusting you for three years. Think about it. Jesus never once failed to keep his word. He never once acted Against the Father's will, he demonstrated his divine power over and over and over again. I mean, sign after sign after sign. It wasn't like he just showed up and said, hey, Thomas, I'm Jesus. Lean the weight of your life on me, right? Like three years. To which Thomas basically says here, sorry, pal, not good enough. I'll tell you how I would respond, (laughs) right? If I'm Jesus, eh, not good enough. Hey, Thomas. Well, let's see how good things turn out for you apart from me. Good luck with that, right? Cue the snarky train. Aren't you grateful, friends? Jesus doesn't respond that way. He doesn't do that. And not just with Thomas, but but catch this, with all the disciples, right? Like, let's, let's not pin the struggle with unbelief thing, tail, on Thomas like he's some kind of donkey. Why not? Because even the faith of those who had seen Jesus a week earlier remained incredibly weak in this passage. Where do we get that? Well, what are all the disciples doing, Thomas included, a week after Jesus commissioned them to go out and proclaim his resurrection? They're hiding in a room, right? Behind locked doors. They're still ruled by fear. None of them are walking in great faith in Jesus. Even those that believe he really had risen from the grave. Thomas isn't alone. They all need Jesus to strengthen their faith. Remember that, Christian, whenever you are interacting with someone, whether they claim to be a follower of Christ or not, and you realize they're struggling with skepticism or unbelief, remember what? Remember that what they need Jesus to do for them is categorically no different than what you always need Jesus to do for you. Faith is a gift. And every good gift comes from above. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse 26. This is stunning. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came. What a picture that is of his ability to just break in to whatever situation you feel like has created insurmountable barriers to his goodness in your life, right? He came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Here's what I love about that. That is the exact same thing he just said to all of them back in verse 19. <laughs> exact same thing. Why, why is that striking? Because it just points to the Lord's patience. You Realize that. He, he doesn't tire of taking initiative to reveal himself to us again and again. And when he says, peace be with you, he's saying a whole lot more than, guys, don't freak out. <laughs> don't freak out. I'm sure that's part of it. Peace be with you is what? It's nothing less than a declaration of the rich peace of the gospel. It's, it's, not a, a, it's not a thoughts and prayers kind of peace rooted in emotional frames subject to constant change. Peace be with you, it's a, it's a sturdy promise and an unchanging reality of what? Restored relationship with our creator through the life, death, and resurrection of God the Son. But Jesus knows that one of these guys has yet to experience that peace at all. And what's so incredible here is, you notice, he doesn't need Thomas to fill him in. Do you see that? It wasn't like he went and said, okay, well, I've got my clipboard out. How are y'all doing? No, he, he knew exactly what Thomas had said last Sunday. Exactly. Psalm 139.4 even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He was intimately aware of Thomas's skepticism and unbelief. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Think about it. Did Jesus owe Thomas that kind of in your face, seeing with his physical eyes sort of experience? Did he owe him that? No. No, he had already given him what? More than enough reasons to trust him. So why on earth then did he condescend to give Thomas the very sort of physical, tangible, see it with your eyes kind of experience that Thomas demanded? Well, it's not because Jesus is getting weak or soft. He's not accommodating his unbelief. He's not ignoring or overlooking his unbelief, friends. He did it for this reason. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Why did he do it? Simple answer? Because he had mercy on Thomas. He didn't owe it to him. He had mercy on him. Listen, he delights to show you the same kind of mercy today, my friend. Do do not believe the lie of Satan. This is a big one, okay? That until you find a way to muster up some real faith around here, all right? God wants nothing to do with you. That's a lie. God will not ignore or overlook or sweep under the rug your unbelief. What does he do instead? He's faithful to pursue his own even when we are stuck in our unbelief in the greatness of his mercy. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Where you and I experience unbelief and say, well, I am done being friends with you. (laughs) Right? Jesus says, sees unbelief, he holds out his hands. Stunning. If, If your faith, how do we apply this? If your faith in Jesus is weak, Or maybe more accurately, your faith in Jesus just feels non-existent. Friend, here's what you need to do. Because this is the work your Savior delights to do. You need to ponder and meditate and gaze and consider the love he demonstrated and the deliverance he accomplished by laying down his life for you. You need to gaze at his wounds, friend. Is there an important place? for apologetic books and conversations that traffic in how the biblical canon was formed or all the archeological evidence for biblical history or, or a Christian response to the problem of evil. Is there a place for those things? Absolutely, but listen, none of those things will ever be the foundation of the Christian faith. Jesus is and will forever be known and loved and trusted because of his scars. So what, what, what do his scars reveal? When, when we look at his hands, what do we see? The good news, the mind transforming, heart overwhelming, will conforming reality that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why? Why? So that all who repent of their sins and look to Jesus for deliverance from the wrath we deserve could receive this stunning gift of abundant eternal life as fellow heirs of Christ. That's what we see. And so Jesus urges Thomas to make a choice. Don't miss this. Look at verse 27. Because it's the same choice he urges us to make again and again and again. This isn't like a one and done kind of choice. Don't read the passes that way. Oh, well, I'm a Christian, so I had my moment where I, I joined the belief train and now I'm just kind of trugging along. Do you realize this choice, do not disbelieve, but believe, that, that is the choice that wakes you up with your alarm clock every morning and follows you around all day long, right now, when you're feeling this, right now, when you're having that conversation, right now, when you get that news, believe, disbelieve. What's it going to be? Faith in Jesus is a gift, but it's also a choice. With the power God provides, we must what? We have to exercise our will and choose to submit to King Jesus. And trusting ourselves to him. And that's exactly what Thomas does in verse 28. Look there with one of the most beautiful declarations of faith in the whole Bible. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. No, no, He doesn't say, what does he not say? You are the Lord. Or you must be God. <laughs> or I recognize you must have risen from the grave. That appears to be a historical fact. As if agreeing with sound doctrine was sufficient. Oh yeah, wholly on board with that statement of faith. Friend, you can be wholly on board in your mind with a statement of faith and never have said, my Lord and my God. You can agree with everything you find on this church's website and have never actually said, my Lord, my God. That's sobering. But what does Thomas say? He says, you are my Lord. You are my God. He's doing what? He's, he's personally relying on Jesus in light of what the resurrection proves him to be. That's what faith is. You, you want a definition for faith? So I've used that word a lot this morning. Here's a, a take-home definition for faith, okay? This is what faith is. It's informed, personal reliance on Jesus to give you life. And all those words matter. Informed, personal reliance on Jesus to give us life. Every one of us must make that choice. Will I be a man or a woman who believes or disbelieves? There's, there's no neutral territory in that choice. There, there's no one foot in each camp option. Listen, to ignore the choice. Or to postpone the choice is to make a choice. What choice is that? To not believe Jesus. So friend, in in view of his wounds, that the steadfast love he lavished on us at the cross and and in view of his, his resurrection, the victory he won for us over sin and death, I urge you, I implore you, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Confess with Thomas, my Lord, my God. And Christian, whenever you encounter somebody, we'll just keep bringing application in this category, okay? Who's, who's struggling with unbelief or skepticism, follow Jesus' example here. Be merciful. Be compassionate. Don't just say, I just, you just have a faith issue, dude. Get over it. You know? No. Don't, don't think you, you have to even answer all their objections to faith, okay? Help them where you can, but but more than anything else, point them to Jesus. Point them to Jesus. Tell them of the abundant life you have in him. Talk about his wounded hands. It's not apologetic smarts that are ever going to win the day in the soul of a man or woman. It's not. It's the beauty of Christ in the gospel of our salvation. Show them that. Speak of that. Jesus overcomes our unbelief in the greatness of his mercy. Here's the final lesson, point number three. The faith that brings life is rooted in the word of Christ. So remember where we've come from, okay? Unbelief in Jesus exposes faith in someone else, typically ourselves. How does he respond to that? Well, he overcomes that in the greatness of his mercy, holding forth his wounded hands. We need to do the same. But then, okay, once our unbelief is being overcome, what is our faith actually rooted and grounded in? Well, that's where the last part of this passage is so important. To look, at, look at verse 29. Jesus immediately affirms, I love this, the authenticity of Thomas's faith. But notice he does it in a way that points all of us to the true foundation of our faith. Verse 29, have you believed because you have seen me? That you is singular. He's talking to Thomas. Blessed are those, plural, who have not seen and yet have believed. Now think really carefully here, okay? Because we don't want to hear what Jesus is not saying, all right? Jesus is not saying that the disciples who believe Jesus because they physically saw him are not blessed, okay? Or that their faith is suspect. He's not deprecating or throwing shade on eyewitness faith, Rather, what is he doing? He's urging us to locate our faith not in our personal experiences or what we have seen with our own eyes, as helpful as those gifts are, but rather to ground our faith in the enduring foundation of the word of God. Look at verse 30. Jesus did many other signs, things they could see, right? In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, the gospel of John, but these are written, all we've seen in the gospel of John, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. We got to remember here what what Jesus prayed before he died. John 17, 20. What did he pray? Talking to his father. I do not ask for these only. Who are these only? The, The disciples around him who were seeing him with their own eyes, right? I'm not praying just for them. I'm also praying for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you see that? What's the point? That, That under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostle John, who wrote this book that we've been studying for the better part of two years, he became the answer to Jesus' prayer. That's the point. That the divinely intended effect of, of reading John's gospel, studying John's gospel, meditating on John's gospel, is faith in Jesus. It, it's the ultimate purpose of the whole book. Here's what that means. Those who, as Jesus says, have not seen and yet have believed. The people he's talking about in verse 29, saying those who have not seen and yet have believed, they are blessed. Those people are not those who treat faith in Jesus like it's some kind of leap in the dark thing. Notice that. I can't see Jesus. I don't have really any reasons to believe he is who he says he is, but I'm just going to believe him anyway. No. No, faith is not, it will never be a leap in the dark, friend. Genuine faith is always a response to the light of God's word. It's not a leap in the dark. It's a response to the light of God's word. What what God has said in his word, not what you and I have physically seen, is the foundation of our faith. I'd say it this way. Listen carefully. The life-giving alternative to the arrogance of unbelief, enslaved to human reason, is the humility of faith grounded in divine revelation. That's the alternative. Faith that he was a real person? Faith that that Jesus had some good things to say? Faith faith that no matter what's going on in my life, somehow it's just going to all work out for good in the end? No. No, no, no. Okay? What is faith? Informed personal reliance on Jesus because he is the Christ, the son of God. What does it mean that he is the Christ? It means he's the anointed one sent by the father. To make right all our sin is made wrong. He's the Christ. What, what does it mean that he's the Son of God? It means the Father sent. Who did the Father send? No one less than the eternal God Himself. Clothed in human flesh. Son of God highlights his divine identity. Christ highlights his saving work. And notice the point of God's word in general here, and the Gospel of John in particular, is, is not to convince us to believe Jesus for the sake of becoming. A person of faith, or a spiritual person, or a religious person, or a I-go-to-church person. No, the result of believing Jesus, look at verse 31, the, the great reward of faith in Jesus is what? Having life in his name. That, that's not just life in heaven, you know? Get tight with Jesus. When you see Peter at the pearly gates, you got a nice little get-out-of-jail-free card you can flash at him. No, no, that's not life then, it's life now. And then, I love how Pastor Tim Keller describes this in his book, Making Sense of God. Listen, only through faith in Jesus will you find a meaning that suffering can't take away from you. A satisfaction that is not based on circumstances. An identity that doesn't crush you or exclude others a hope that can face anything and a justice that doesn't create new
0: oppressors.
1: Those are not blessings. We could go on. (laughs) Those are not blessings Jesus gives apart from himself, okay? As if he were some sort of divine genie or, you know, schmoozy seller of spiritual goods. Okay, no. They, They describe the kind of life we have because we have him. That's what John is saying. That the life of faith in Jesus is life. What? Verse thirty-one. In His name, which means Jesus is two things, friends. He's both the object of our faith, the one we're trusting, and He's the reward of our faith, the blessing we receive as a result of our trust. His peace becomes our peace. His joy becomes our joy. His holiness becomes our holiness. His riches become our inheritance. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His access to the Father becomes our access to the Father. The the life, in other words, that, that Christianity offers you. Hear this, especially if you're wrestling with the claims of Christianity, okay? The life Christianity offers is not remotely a cleaned up version of life in yourself, or a way of getting more life in this world. It's life in Jesus, friend. The eternal, satisfying comfort of knowing him and loving him and serving him. That's the life John's talking about. That's the life God created us to enjoy and is pursuing you even now to give you if you're willing to turn from your sin and trust in him. So where do we go to find that life? Where do we go to strengthen our faith in Jesus and our experience of life in him? If all that I'm talking about is like, that's attractive. Where do I find that? Well, we go to God's word. We go to God's word. We look to God's word. The the most important habit, let's just put this very practically. The most important habit you can develop in 2022 has nothing to do with your diet or your exercise though those are good things. Okay? Another sermon. (laughs) But we live in a culture that really worships those things. Get those right, you'll find life. No, you won't. You'll just keep getting old. And one day you'll die, right? (laughs) Right? Where do we go for life? And where is it? A new budget, right? Better financial management. You want life? Make your habit in 22 that every day you open up this word and take and eat. You want life? Do that. won't disappoint you. because this is where God reveals. It's not magic. Like, life coming off the page. I can almost see the waves. No, <laughs> no, that's paganism, okay? We find life here because this book is where God reveals the goodness and beauty of Jesus to our spiritual eyes. And it's as we see him for who he is that what happens? Faith and trust in him begins to rise in your hearts. Don't wait around for that to happen or going back to where I started, think, well, some people just have faith, some don't. I'm probably one of the losers or maybe it's a leap in the dark. I'll just just try believing Jesus for a while and see if it actually sticks. It's like, no, no. It's far simpler than that and far more supernatural. Take up and read and watch God give faith. I'll end with this. One of my pastoral goals for our church this year is that we would be a people who, who grow, I think we can always grow, <laughs> in reading good Christian books that help us understand and rightly apply the word of God. Uh, so I want to conclude this morning before we sing. This is a little bit of a different ending to most of my sermons, but by highlighting a couple books for you okay, that develop this principle of biblical faith. It's the point of John 20. It's informed personal reliance on Jesus to give us life. So let me, let me give you these four very quickly, okay? Here's the first book recommendation. It's by William Taylor, and it's a one-to-one series of Bible studies. Faith in Jesus grows in the soil of God's word, Period. That's the point of verse 31. And so if you want to help a friend who has yet to trust in Jesus, learn to trust Jesus, invite them to read the Gospel of John with you. And and use William Taylor's booklets to guide your conversation. I like these so much that if you stop by the bookshop at any point this year and ask for a copy, we will order them for you and get them to you for free, okay? Here's the second recommendation. It's an older book, but not in like old English. Don't freak out, okay? Okay. Like old today is like, oh, it was published 20 years ago. Wow, it's a dinosaur. No, but it's by Randy Newman and it's called Questioning Evangelism. If you read the Bible, including John, you'll notice that Jesus often responded to unbelief around him in the form of questions that just invited other people around him to, to think about the reasons for their unbelief. And Randy does a great job explaining in this book how you can follow his example and engage in really humble conversation with skeptics in a way that points them back to God's word. Here's the third resource. This is by, by Kevin DeYoung. It's called Taking God at His Word. Then here's a mouthful, okay? Why the Bible is knowable, necessary, and enough, and what that means for you and me. <laughs> it's a great title. If you've wrestled with, with believing the Bible is true, or this whole idea Wait a minute, are you saying that God can perfectly communicate his word through the words of imperfect men? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Help me with that. If you're thinking that way, grab the Young's book. It's really worth your time. He's careful, concise, he cuts to the chase. Here's a final resource. It's by Greg Gilbert, another pastor, and it's it's simply called Assured. Assured. And, And this is a book written primarily to Christians. And specifically to those who are, are struggling with knowing whether you really believe Jesus is the Christ. to actually believe that? If you're questioning the authenticity of your faith, Gilbert will serve you really well. So you can check all those out in the bookshop. Don't stampede or you can pull them up on your favorite online bookstore. Here's what we need to take away from this chapter, friends. To whatever degree, to whatever degree, you are struggling to believe Jesus. In any situation, do not despair. Do not despair. Don't don't hide. Don't try to stuff that down. Don't keep it in the dark from other people around you who care for you. Don't run away from God. Cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. Because he delights to do for you exactly what he did for Thomas. And then make a priority of lingering in the fountain of God's word. Read his word. Meditate on his word. Study his word. Knowing that, that our faith, faith that leads to life, is ultimately rooted in the word of Christ. Here's my prayer for us this year, Kingsway. It comes from 1 Peter 1, verses 8 through 9. That this is the, think of it this way. This is the sweet fruit. Of informed reliance on Jesus to give you life. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Lord, would you please do that? In my heart, in my friend's hearts? Would we want to be a people who see where we are stuck in areas of unbelief or doubt or skepticism? And in those areas, Lord, instead of being quiet or silent, crying out to you for help. Or saying help to you by, by saying help to your people. Thank you that when we do that, Jesus, you meet us with your wounds. You show us your scars, pages of your word. You are gentle, kind, tender. You Don't ignore our unbelief, but you meet us in the midst of it by directing our gaze to your word. Do that this year, we pray, that, that as a people, we would be less blown about by our emotional frames and more stable and steadfast on the rock of the word of God. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the word made flesh and that the word written always sends us back to you. Amen.